All right, well, thank everybody for coming tonight. There is a lot to talk about tonight. It actually, I think, broken up into more than one night, but you'll be happy to know that I have whittled it down to about 90 minutes. So sit back, <laughs> sit back, put your seatbelts on. 90 minutes, just give or take plus, plus or minus five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I love to see the look on people's faces when you say something like that. So tonight we're going to continue in the Statement of Faith. We're going to talk about sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. So why is this so important? Well, what we know about sanctification, perseverance, and glorification matters. When we know that it was God Almighty who called us and brought him to us because he loves us, when we know he is committed to us, working in us to change us into conformity to his son Jesus, when we know that it is he who keeps us, and it is not our own strength that holds us in faith, and when we know that our final state is guaranteed, this will all give us a joy and assurance that nothing can take away. Because of that, how we live matters. We were bought with a price for a reason. God wanted to reveal himself to a people, call a people to him, and live with them forever, where they or we would worship him forever. All true born-again believers are on this heavenward trajectory that plays out in part in this life now as we grow in conformity to Jesus and is culminated when we pass into our forever dwelling place with him in our final glorified state. Until that time, we are to live for the glory of our king and not for any other gods with a small g that might try to rule over our lives. And we know that there are a lot of them. This is one reason why God says that his name is Jealous with a capital J. Why? As one commentator said, his name and nature answer to no one. He and he alone is God, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. The universe owes its existence to him. There is no other being like him. As such, he admits of no rival or competitor in worship, and he will not give his glory to another. He will not share the worship and praise that are due him with any other being or thing, not because he is insecure, but because such honor rightfully belongs to him. In Exodus 24, the people swore their faithfulness to the covenant and promised to keep all of the requirements, but in practice, we know they failed miserably. How could they not? Many or most did not have the heart change that was needed to follow God. They followed out of duty, which became to them a yoke of slavery, just as it is with many today. And we know from God's word that he was not happy with them back then, nor is he today. But because we who have been born again have been changed, we follow and obey Jesus out of love and not duty alone. Sometimes, though, it can be hard to tell the two apart because we don't know what's truly in the heart of every person. That's why there can be a vast difference between profession of faith and possession of faith. The former profession comes out of the mouth but does not proceed from a heart that has been changed or seeks to live for the object of their faith. The latter possession comes from a truly changed heart. 
We read in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says of the ungodly, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. He says that they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Or we read in Luke 13, Jesus says concerning those who will be saved, many will seek to enter, but not be able to because they don't have the heart change. So think about if you have a job you love, it is usually a joy to go to work. But if it's a job you dislike, it can be drudgery. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We see that living for his kingdom can only be lived out when we love him and see that he is worthy of all that we have. If not, we're just following rules, trying to live good moral lives, and that can turn out to be drudgery. So as we talk about our statement of faith, most of the time we will be, spent, we will be spending in sanctification. But before I get into that, I just want to talk a little bit about the words sanctify or sanctification. Biblically speaking, to be sanctified means to set someone or something apart for a sacred purpose. It can mean to consecrate, to dedicate, dedicate, to free from sin, or to purify. It is also the process of making or becoming holy over time. One commentator I read on the word sanctify said that in the Old Testament usage, it can also carry the meaning of to cut and to separate. And this is what God does, did for us and what he calls us to do also, to be cut away, separate from the world, and to live for his glory. We see a picture of this in the Old Testament with the tabernacle, with all the furnishings and even the utensils. The tabernacle, as we know, was a place of God's dwelling amongst his people. As such, everything that was to be a part of that had to be set apart, anointed, consecrated, or sanctified to him that would all be holy in service to him. Specific instructions were given that had to be followed. It's similar today. We who have been called by God have been set apart from him for a sacred purpose. It's to honor and to praise him with our lives. God even says this about himself in regards to being sanctified in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Here, sanctified carries with it the sense of God being hallowed, honored, or treated as sacred. So let's look at the statement of faith. First part. As the all-sufficient Savior, Christ also sanctifies his people, cleansing them from the impurity of sin and setting them apart for God and his service. Ephesians 5.26 tells us that Jesus gave himself up that he might sanctify the church by the washing of water with the word. We know that the more we study and the know that we know God's word, the Holy Spirit will work this process of sanctification out in us. But as I said last time I spoke, we cannot just sit back and do nothing and expect the Holy Spirit to work. There is a positive and a negative or negation on our part in sanctification. In the positive, we seek after or strive after the things of God. In the negative or the negation part, we stop bad behaviors and turn from things that we know 
we shouldn't do. 1 Timothy 6, Paul gives Timothy some things he must flee from, and then he must, that he must pursue or strive after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. As we all know, there is no inherent ability in any of us to pursue or strive after the things of God or to turn from our sin. We need the Holy Spirit for this. It's also important to say that sanctification is a progressive action. All right? The best soldiers are not the ones straight out of boot camp. No, the best soldiers are the ones who have been tried in the fires of combat. Unfortunately, God doesn't just snap his finger and make us all perfectly holy, does he? That would be great, but he doesn't. He keeps us in the battle because the longer the battle, the better the soldier. Also, important, no Christian will ever be completely sanctified in this life. There's no perfection. It happens over time, and that time will be years, our lifetime. As we do grow, though, we should and will be ever more victorious with the sin in our life. Not that the strongest Christian can't fall or won't sin, but the holiness that marks our life will be more evident the majority of the time. And this will be displayed by living the way God calls us to live. Something else that's important to know about sanctification. It is not just a change from bad habits to good habits. Although that is important. Sanctification consists in a change and renovation of our inward nature itself over time. We're changing inwardly as well as outwardly or visibly. Paul references this in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he says, May God sanctify us completely and that our whole body, soul, and spirit would be kept blameless. Sanctification itself can also be broken down into two parts or two fancy words that theologians use. The first you may have heard of, the second maybe not. They are mortification and vivification. Admit I had to look up what vivification meant. I know I must have heard that word before. but So the great theologian John Calvin stated that mortification is when a person becomes aware of their sin and the judgment of God. This produces a holy fear, sorrow, and anguish for it. This in turn compels a person to hate sin and seek God's forgiveness and mortify or put that sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Vivification, or to vivify, is to give life or to make alive. And this is exactly what the Spirit does with God's people. The life that we now have is Christ's own life coursing through us. Because Jesus lives within us through the Spirit, he works to cleanse us from sin and impurity and sets us apart for God and his service. Because there is no service or act that anyone who is not born again can do that brings glory to God or is acceptable to God. We need the Spirit of God living inside of us to serve Him faithfully. Without the Spirit of God, there would be no mortification nor vivification, vivification in the life of the believer. Jesus gave this pattern of gospel living to us by the power of the Spirit so we would not only put sin to death, but so, and we would also live unto righteousness. As author Michael Horton says, although Jesus took up His cross and died for our sins once and for all, We must also die to our sins daily as we take up our cross when we face persecution from within and from without and as we continue to struggle inwardly 
with our new identity. I think we can all attest to that. It's a battle going on. Paul also tells the Ephesians that they are to put off or mortify the old self or the way they used to live, which that's for us too, which he describes as being corrupt through deceitful desires. That's the negation side. We put off. Instead, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on, put on the new self. That's the positive side. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, we have action on our part coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit. According to the great John Owen, there are a number of actions that work or promote our spiritual progress or sanctification. Individually, some of the means for focusing our mind on God, we would all know these, prayer, meditation, Bible reading, memorization. Interestingly, he then lists corporate aspects, which means as a church. He says these are crucial, crucial to help the believer grow in putting off the old self and putting on the new. Owen says that these are corporate worship, hearing the word of God preached as we attend church, and participation in the sacraments. I think most people would agree with the individual aspects, but I wonder how many people would agree with the corporate aspects. Hopefully everyone here does. Pretty sure you do, but in the world, a lot of people don't put a big emphasis on the church as a body. What he is saying is that the church plays a crucial role in each person's spiritual development, and it is one reason why believers are called to not only attend a local church, but to be committed to a local church. This also tells us that there is no individuality in Christianity because we need each other. So how else does Jesus work to sanctify his people and cleanse us from our sin? His spirit works in us to reveal sin in our lives, which we then turn from. This may be from a gentle admonition from others. Hopefully it's gentle. Or through prayer. Last time I talked, I spoke of Job, how he cried out to God, How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sins. That's for us too because he knows and we know that there are sins hidden in our heart that we don't know about. We need God to reveal them. Even when we don't know how to pray or what to pray for, Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit helps us because He is interceding for us according to the will of God. So when we're so overwhelmed with the brokenness of the sin-cursed world, or maybe even the sin in our own lives, that we don't even know how to pray, we can be assured that there is help waiting. How many times have you prayed, Lord, I don't even know what to pray in this situation. It's so overwhelming, Lord. I can't even say anything. The good news is he knows, and he knows our heart. Because of that, we can also be confident that through prayer, Jesus will aid and comfort us in our trials and our struggles. He also gives us the strength to live righteously, which again is the positive side of sanctification. As we see this putting off of the old self and putting on of the new, they go hand in hand, and we cannot do one without the other, as they are two sides of the same gospel coin. How about service to God? Question, before you came to faith, did anyone ever want to truly serve God? Unless maybe you were raised in the church and you had to, 
Did anyone want to serve God, evangelize, serve the church or its people? Did they ever say, hey, I can't wait to go over that building over there and just get in there and do something. I can't wait. No, no one said that. Of course not. And I would have told you you were out of your mind 17 years ago if you told me that I would be standing up here speaking about the Lord and loving it. These, again, are ways that Jesus, through his Spirit, sets us apart for service to him because his Spirit works in our heart for the things he loves. Next part of the statement of faith, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit breaks our bondage to sin and Satan and raises us to new life, enabling believers to put sin to death and grow in likeness to Christ. Sanctification is therefore both a definitive act of God and a progressive work of the Spirit. So, the Spirit breaks our bondage to sin and to Satan. Another question, think about this. Before you came to faith, and to know the deeper truths of the Bible, would you have considered yourself in bondage to sin and Satan before you came to faith? Satan never had a grip of me. I was just living my own life the way I wanted to live. Understanding this truth can be hard to swallow, and it should cause us to see how desperate everyone's need is for Jesus. We call the gospel the good news in part because there's also bad news. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy, that unbelievers are in the snare of the devil, captured by him to do his will. So imagine one of those big bear traps. Pop that thing open, put it out there, animal comes in, slam shut. It's caught in there and can't do anything. That's pretty amazing when we read a verse like that and think, I was in the snare of the devil and I was doing his will. Acts 26 tells us that until saved, all are in darkness and under the power of Satan. 1 John 5 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Of course, we understand that this is all under the sovereignty of God who works all things according to his good pleasure and will. As I said last time, Satan has no independent power And that should also comfort us. God is working all things according to his will. But these truths, they hold for everyone, even our cute little children and grandchildren. And this is why the most important thing we can do for them is to lead them to Christ. Because through faith, they and we have been set free from Satan's snare and bondage to our sin. But this freedom that we have now is not a freedom that can become an excuse to sin, but rather freedom from sin for life and for serving one another. So the Spirit not only breaks our bondage to sin and Satan, but raises us to new life. I love the picture in Ezekiel 37 on the story of the Valley of Bones. Ezekiel was taken by the Lord to a valley where there was nothing but a vast number of dead bones lying on the ground. The Lord said to him, Son of man, can these bones live? The Lord then said, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I think we might see a picture of Romans ten seventeen here, right? Faith comes from hearing. So Ezekiel did what he was told, and we read that there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, but there was no breath in them. 
The Lord then said, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, that they may live. And so Ezekiel did as commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, commentators would say that there is more than one point to these passages, but I like what Charles Spurgeon has to say about it, that it is a picture of the recovery of ungodly men from their spiritual death and corruption in which sinners are brought up from their hopeless, spiritually dead condition and made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one way that the Spirit raises us to new life. Statement goes on to say, sanctification is therefore both a definitive act of God and a progressive work of the Spirit. So the first and definitive act God does is the setting us apart or cutting us away. We have to be cut away because we were once attached to the kingdom of darkness. This is also why, as Dave taught last week, that we must see the importance of being justified or declared righteous by God. Theologian Francis Turretin says that God cannot show favor to nor justify anyone who isn't perfectly righteous because he, God, is perfect. Therefore, he cannot pronounce anyone just who is not truly just. But when God sets us apart through faith, we are declared innocent or just through the imputation of Jesus' righteousness. I mention this because some people confuse justification and sanctification. Through faith, we are justified or declared not guilty as if by a court of law. Once and for all, it's done. Therefore, justification is a legal declaration concerning the guilt of our sin. Although there is a definitive act when God sets us apart, sanctification is concerning our pollution or the filth that still is within us because of sin, and God working it out of us over time. So let's look at this progressive work of the Spirit that the statement of faith talks about. The Bible gives us, as we know, many commands about how we are to live. Deuteronomy chapter 18, God said, When you come into the land that the Lord is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. And he gives a short list, and he says, Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. I think we would all agree with that. But then God says this, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Blameless? In the New Testament, we have 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Speaking beforehand of God's promises, Paul says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every, not some, not most, every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. First and second Peter tell us to be holy in all of our conduct and to be found without spot or without blemish. In this life, that's a pretty high bar. So, let me start by saying that all of these verses I've read are present tense commands. Not someday when you're advanced in years, thou shalt be holy. You could almost technically add the word now to these commands. But God is merciful, and he knows our state, 
And as such, he knows that it will be a lifelong process. And that should help comfort us. Imagine if God's word said, when you're advanced in your age, then, then you should start seeking after holiness. We would just sit back, put our feet up and say, well, twiddle our thumbs and say, well, I could do it on my time. No, God wants it now. But he knows it will take our lifetime. But because it is, like I said, a lifelong process, we should never stay where we are or think that we can't grow steadily in faith. We cannot just continue to purposely engage in a habitual and sinful act because God is merciful or because sanctification is a lifelong process because that would be presuming on God's grace and that would be a sin. Saying, well, what do you expect? I'm just a work in progress. That does have some truth to it. But it is not an excuse to stay where we are or not to seek or strive to be who God calls us to be. As God is a God of means, he's given us tools for this endeavor. I'm going to repeat them again because they are important. Church, Bible study, prayer, meditation, memorization are means of grace we need to regularly avail ourselves of. And although we have to be careful that we don't say, well, God, I did my part. Now you got to do yours as if he owes us something. There is a truth that to the degree that we use the means that he has given us will be the degree that we grow in faith. And so if that's true, the opposite is also true. If we're not using these means, we won't grow as strong in faith as we should, as bold and zealous as we should. The question we might ask ourselves is, what do I set before myself? What is my aim? What is my goal? If someone's immediate answer to be holy for I am holy is, well, I can't be perfect, then I have to say that they've already lost the battle because their sight is fixed on what they can't do in themselves but can do in Jesus. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might is the call of Ephesians 6.10. Be strong and courageous is found numbers of times in the Old Testament. Why? Because God is saying, this is who you can be if you rely on me and my power. This is also one reason why Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, to believe what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe according to the working of his, God's great might. We just have to believe it's possible through the Holy Spirit. So last time I spoke, I said we can use human examples because the Bible does, so think about this human example. In the late 1940s, early 1950s, the sports world said that running a four-minute mile was impossible. It was actually described as running's greatest goal, something as elusive and seemingly unattainable as Mount Everest back then. But there was a man, Roger Bannister, who thought differently. When he set his mark on this goal, doctors told him that not only was running the four-minute mile impossible for an athlete to do, but attempting it would be dangerous for his health. One doctor even said, if you do this, you're going to die. 
1954, at age 25, Bannister broke the four-minute barrier, running the mile in three minutes and 59.4 seconds, collapsing as he crossed the finish line. Bannister said, when I got up from the track after collapsing, I thought I was dead. (laughs) Maybe that doctor was right, but he wasn't. As of April 2021, the four-minute barrier has since been broken by over 1,600 athletes and is now a standard of professional distance runners. An interesting aside to the story is that Bannister was a lifelong Christian and came to know Christ personally through his friendship with John Stott, who is someone you might have heard because he was the leader of the world-renowned All Souls Church in London. The point of the story is, for Bannister, everything in his life was geared towards reaching his goal. And so I'm confident also that prayer played a large part in his attainment. Failure was not an option for him. It seemed too lofty of a goal to reach, but that didn't stop him. Although we're not chasing worldly goals, do we give as much time to the attainment of our spiritual goals or growth? Is God, his church, his word, prayer, again, meditation, memorization, as important as our time spent in or our commitments to Facebook, sports, or fill in the blank with whatever other answer we have? Again, there is a correlation to growing strong in faith, boldness, and being hungry for God and our devotion to the means he has given us. Again, I say this because it's important. It's not, I did this, now you have to do that type of thing with God. But he does give us promises that we can hold on to. Proverbs 13, 4 says the diligent uh, is richly supplied. And if we're diligent in this, if we're seeking faith, we're going after it, we can pray this, Lord, I'm doing all I can, Lord. I want to be bold and strong in faith, Lord. This is what your word says. I hold this promise up to you. And he'll answer that prayer. James says, if you want wisdom, just ask. But that's not all he says, is it? How do we have to ask? Without faith? Uh, with faith and without doubting. Galatians 5.16, Paul calls the church to walk by the Spirit. What will the result of that be? He says, if we do that, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a pretty lofty goal. The question is, will that be the goal we aim for, or will we just immediately dismiss it as unattainable? Again, no perfection in this life, but what are we pursuing? Paul also makes it clear that it's not just these big sins that we need to be concerned with. In Galatians 5, along with sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery. Anybody doing sorcery? Would anybody tell, say it out loud if they were practicing sorcery? Probably not. He lists strife, sensuality, jealousy, anger, envy, and drunkenness, and some other things. These are first and foremost given to us for our own self-examination. The list mixes outward sins with inward sins. Our culture easily condemns the more outward and obvious sins, but we must take the other ones seriously too, the ones we might consider the little sins. Why is this important? Because Paul says this right after he tells us what I just read. As I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And just to be clear what Paul is talking about, is not that we can lose our salvation if we slip into those sins. It's not what he's saying. But if the regular pattern of our life is marked with this way of living, 
when we've made a profession of faith to live contrary to that, then we better be careful because that can be the mark of someone who isn't truly saved no matter what they say. And that's why knowing God's truths is important because unbelievers, as we know, can look the part by hating and stopping their bad behaviors too. But they do it for their own sake and the sake of their reputation and standing, not because they have offended a holy God. Even if they clean themselves up real nice, it will do them no good in the end because they will have lived their whole lives for themselves. This is one reason why Romans 8 tells us in verse 13 to 14, for if you live by the flesh, according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death of the deed body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We see that who we put our trust in points to who we are. Next in the statement, there's this kind of crossover between sanctification and perseverance. Believers must persevere in faith and obedience in order to be saved. Yet, this perseverance is also a gift of God in Christ who perseveres his own and keeps them safe forever. So if you looked it up, one definition of perseverance is persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. So would anybody disagree, disagree, that our Christian walk is not difficult at all or that things don't come as quickly as we would like. No one's going to disagree with that, right? Because our walk is difficult and things don't come as quickly as we would like. So I was reading this on Sunday. I get these uh, once a month. They're Charles Spurgeon sermons. uh, And I thought it fit perfectly. This is what Spurgeon says. Walk in communion with Christ in whatever path he may point out to you. Never mind how rough it is. Do not imagine it is the wrong road because it is so rough. Rather, reckon it to be right because it is rough. For seldom do smoothness and rightness go together. This is one reason why God, again, wants us to know what the tools are that that are at our disposal, so to speak, to grow. Because we are in a battle where we must persevere. And it ain't a battle of earthly things, first and foremost, is it? At least if it was, we would be able to see the enemy then. Again, our friend Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Thanks, Paul. So in order to stand strong and persevere in the faith, we need to know the right way of fighting this battle and persevering. As in any battle, there is preparation for the battle and the combat itself. The preparation requires that we use the armor of God to protect ourselves to withstand the enemy. The whole armor, right? Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we know included in that is knowing biblical truth by knowing God's word, faith, and being a person of prayer. This is the only way that we can persevere. As many of you know, I was a trooper for 25 years. It would have been disastrous for me if I went out on patrol with nothing but my uniform on. Go to an active shooter call without a vest and a gun? That would be crazy. Try to arrest a violent felon without my handcuffs? Probably wouldn't have much luck there. No, I had to be fully prepared for whatever the day might bring so I could make it through to the end. So does each one of us 
and the spiritual battles that we will face. Interestingly, Paul tells us to not only put on the whole armor of God in verse 11, that we can stand against the schemes of the devil, but in verse 13, he says to take up the whole armor of God so we can withstand in the evil day and then stand firm. In the Greek, to put on is to clothe or to be clothed with. That's the preparation. To take up signifies action. It can also mean to raise or lift up. That's the combat. So why would Paul tell us to put on the armor of God in verse 11 and take up the armor of God in verse 13? Is there something important between those two verses that we need to know about? Absolutely. There are bookends to what I read in verse 12 where he wrote that it is the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that are our main concern. Through it all, God calls us to persevere and stand strong in his power by the means that he has given us. And so when we speak of perseverance, there can be this circular type of discussion that we can have. Truth number one, if I'm truly saved, I can't lose my faith, and nothing can keep me out of heaven. True. Truth number two, if I don't bear fruit, if I don't persevere and live a life that shows who my king is, even though I say I'm saved, then I won't enter heaven either. True. How can they both be true? In the beginning, I said there can be a vast difference between profession of faith and possession of faith. There are many in the world who make up the former. It's just a veiled profession. But only those who persevere to the end show that they have the latter, the true profession, possession. Matthew 10, Jesus tells us that we will be hated by all for his name's sake. Anybody ever feel that way before? Sure, right? But he says the one who endures to the end will be saved. Colossians 1, we read, Jesus has reconciled us by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is fabulous news. Fortunately, the sentence doesn't end there. It says, if, if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Then Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm and to the end. And if you know Hebrews, and a couple chapters later, it talks about people in the church who walk the walk, talk the talk. The Spirit of God can even work in them, not in a salvic way or saving way. They can enjoy fellowship. They can be a part of the church for years and then simply just walk away because they were never truly saved. And that's sad, and I think we all know people like that. So all that perseverance, it can sound daunting, right? And if it was in our own power, it would be. But God has given us promises, hasn't he? I think Pastor Eric spoke on this uh, a couple of weeks ago on Romans eight twenty nine to 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These verses are given to us so we can see that there is a chain that cannot be broken. If it was our ability or strength that got us into that chain, then it would be more like a rusty old bicycle chain that was destined to break. Thankfully, 
that is not the case. God's chosen people have been put into that chain by him before the beginning of time. As such, what God has started in us, he will finish and we will cross the finish line, so to speak. A couple more. 1 Corinthians 1, it is Jesus who sustains us to the end. Praise God for that. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Nothing in these verses speaks of our own power. The word kept even signifies watching or guarding over. This is our guarantee because God is in our proverbial corner, watching over us, guiding us, protecting us. He will deliver us. And if God didn't do all of those things, we could charge him as being a liar. Anybody ready to do that? So, someone might say, sure, God gives us promises, but you don't know what kind of sins I've committed. God would never want anything to do with me. Or you don't know how evil the thoughts, intentions, and lusts of my heart can still be. Again, I'll go to Francis Turretin, who says this about God and his promises. Every decree of God, that's every promise in the Bible, is eternal from eternity past to eternity forward. Therefore, it cannot, it cannot depend upon a condition which takes place only in time. God's decrees depend on his good pleasure. Therefore, they are not conditional upon anything outside of God. Every decree of God is immutable. Turretin goes on to discuss some examples of people in the Bible who fell into grievous and heinous sins, and yet that does not prove that they fell from faith. Solomon is one of them. We know Solomon started out really strong, didn't he? But in his latter years, he turned to many, many, many foreign women. There are people who think that Solomon isn't even saved because of his grievous sins. But there are scripture verses, I would say, that point to it, that he is. How about Peter? Peter denied Jesus three times. I admit, when I read that, I kind of just read it, and I don't give much emphasis to it. He denied Jesus three times, and yet no one would argue. I don't think that he's not in heaven now. And if you want a really evil example, we look to Manasseh in the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles, chapter 33. He burned his sons as an offering. He used fortune-telling and sorcery and did much evil in the sight of the Lord. He was an evil king, and he led Judah and its people to do evil. I don't know about those last couple things, but as soon as I read, he burned his sons as an offering. It can't get any worse than that. Then, later in life... God brought tragedy into his life 
which caused Manasseh to repent and turn to God. A lot of us have stories like this. God brings tragedy, he brings affliction, but he uses us to turn it to him because we can be so stiff-necked. We see in this story that no one, no one is outside God's ability to save or to keep. All these men were called and kept by God, even though they sinned greatly. And that should be a comfort for us. We may deserve exclusion from God's kingdom on account of our grievous sins, but praise God that the right of the kingdom is not, it is not founded upon our actions, but on adoption by God through our unbreakable union with Christ. All of our privileges and all the promises of God do not depend on us, but on God. As such, God's love for us is never, never, never predicated or based on how well we perform. Nor is his love lessened for us even one bit, no matter how much we sin. The lie of Satan is to make us think that God wants nothing more to do with us, and we should just run and hide. Newsflash, we don't have to believe the lie. We can stand strong, and we don't ever have to doubt God. Now, when I say doubt God, I don't mean understand everything that God's doing, because we all would say this we have things in our lives that we have no idea what God's doing. We're praying, thinking this is the right way. God goes this way. Things we want answered, he's not answering, or he takes a long time. Uh, and so I'm not saying we understand God, but we don't have to doubt God. Many times when that happens, I'll say, God, the error is always with me. I want to pray your will. I want to be faithful, so help me to do that, Lord. But we don't ever have to doubt God. We do have to be clear, though, that God hates sin, and he will discipline us if we continue in it. But he is never disgusted with us, and no matter what we do, he never says, please, just get away from me. What he wants is for us to turn to him in sorrowful repentance and confession, no matter what it is, and he will forgive all of our sins. Lastly, glorification from the statement of faith. The ultimate goal of sanctification is our full conformity to Christ's image, which will finally come when believers are raised physically with Christ in glory freed from sin and exulting in the presence of God forever. Puritan William Perkins says that glorification is the perfect transforming of the saints into the image of Jesus. Death is the beginning of glorification, and it will be fully accomplished and made perfect on the last day of judgment, which means when Jesus returns. That's when we get our glorified bodies. So, some of the biggest questions we might have out there about our glorified bodies. What will we look like? Hmm, I wonder. If a believer dies young or old, will they be young or old in heaven? What about infirmities or disabilities in this life? Will we know our loved ones? Will we know everyone? Although the Bible doesn't answer all these questions, we might have specifically I think Isaiah 35 and Revelation 21 give us a glimpse into what it will be like. This is Isaiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
and the ransom that the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Revelation 21 adds, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, that's M-O-U-R-N, mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I also think the story of the transfiguration might also give us just a tiny little glimpse into what is to come. Now, we have to be careful here because the story doesn't say or relate much to our future glory. So we have to be careful how we interpret it, but it might just give us a tiny little hint. So we know the story. Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. They're led up on a high mountain, and they pray. In their presence, Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, two men were speaking with them, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. So the disciples are watching this. And Peter says, he mentions Moses and Elijah by name. Now, here's an interesting aside to that. So if our glorified bodies don't come until Jesus returns, how did Moses and Elijah have bodies? Or were they even actual bodies that the disciples saw? How did Peter know it was them? Did he hear Jesus mention their names while they were talking? It's not like he had a picture of them in his wallet. Does this point to our knowing everyone when we get to heaven? Who knows, right? Again, we have to be very careful here talking about it. But was God doing a supernatural work by giving them and us a glimpse into what was to, is to come? Unfortunately, we won't know the answer to that question until we pass into the next life. And that's when we get our glorified bodies when Jesus returns. But it's fun to talk about. So a few more verses. 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. First John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then there's 1 Corinthians 15, and it's long, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come with? The answer is, God gives it a body as he has chosen. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is raised is imperishable. It is raised in glory and power and raised a spiritual body. The first man, Adam was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, who we know as Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust, meaning us, right? And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
So we don't know most of the answers to come that come with our glorification. If we did, we might not stand in as much awe as we should with what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do for us. What is certain is that the worship of God will be central to our experience as we enjoy Jesus' actual physical presence forever. The Bible also speaks of throngs of believers standing around the throne and praising him. Whether this is all that we will be doing is impossible to say. Some would say that we will be engaged in many different tasks, but if so, all of them will be marked with a sense of the presence of God, and whatever we will be doing, it will be an act of praise and thanksgiving to him. So as we reflect on all the teaching that we've had in the statement of faith, it should cause us really to be in awe of this God that we worship. Our final state is secured because it is in his hands. In the Old Testament times, God was leading his people into the promised land. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 2. God comforted his people by saying that he knew of everything they were going through in the wilderness. He said he was bringing them into a land that had great cities that they did not build. Houses full of good things that they did not fill. Cisterns that they did not dig. And vineyards and olive trees that they did not plant. It would all be there waiting for them as they journeyed through life. Even back then, though, God told them that they had to persevere, keeping his commandments so that they would be strong and could go and take possession of the land that he swore to them. For the true believer today, God knows of everything that we are going through in the wilderness. And although we know there will be a new heaven and a new earth, our promised land is in a sense being prepared for us now as God is calling people to him. And how do we know it's being prepared? Jesus tells us this in John 14. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. It is there waiting for us, friends. And until such a time as we receive it, God will use many means to bring us into conformity to Jesus as he prepares us for what is to come. And so we need to listen to the Spirit as he speaks to us, whether it's through reading God's word or through prayer, as he impresses on our hearts what he wants for us. We can rest and be assured that the good work that God has started in us, he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ.